how to be thankful when you're under attack. Now, most of you are planning to get together with family or friends this Thursday for a Thanksgiving meal, right? And so uh, I've got a question for you. How many of you are professional chefs when it comes to cooking turkey? Any of you? As far as I know, no one in our church is a professional turkey chef. Now, we've got some great cooks, but we're not professionals, right? And so I took the liberty of getting together some marvelous turkey recipes for you so you can take your turkey to the next level this Thanksgiving. So here is uh, just a sample of some recipes that you can find in Mrs. Garrity's Thanksgiving cookbook that was prepared by her kindergarten class. And so here's some wonderful recipes. Get your pen ready. You want to write these down. Here's Russell's recipe for cooking your turkey. Russell's recipe. You cut the turkey up and put it in the oven for 10 minutes at 300 degrees. You put gravy on it and eat it. Mm -mm. Doesn't that sound delicious? Well, Russell has a secret ingredient, salmonella. Okay, this next, uh, this next recipe might be for those of you who like a recipe that's a little more violent. Here's Alan's recipe for making your turkey. Uh, first you shoot it, then you cut it. So far, so good. Uh, and then you put it in the oven and cook it for 10 minutes and 20 degrees. You put it on plates and then you eat it. Oh, just mouth-watering, isn't it? Uh, well, some of you might say, you know what, that's a little too violent. I just need a detailed recipe because cooking doesn't come naturally. No problem. Here's Jeremy's more detailed recipe. You buy the turkey and you take the paper off. Don't forget that part. Then you put it in the refrigerator and take it back out. And you cut it with a knife and make sure all the wires are out. And you take out the neck and the heart. Then you put it in a big pan and you cook it for half an hour at 80 degrees. Then you invite people over and eat. Okay. Now, all three of these recipes have that little salmonella extra ingredient. So I want to give you a recipe for those of you who like your turkey well done. Here's a wonderful little recipe from good old Mariah. Mariah says, first you cut the bones out. Then you put it in the oven for 10 hours at 600 degrees. Then you put it on the table and eat it. That is going to be some really dry turkey, but some people like it that way. Now, I've got a bonus recipe for you. Christopher has an excellent recipe for pumpkin pie. This is just mouth-watering. Christopher says, first you buy a pumpkin, then you smash it. Then it's all done. Hey, even I can pull that off. And you cook it in the oven for 12 minutes at 4 degrees, and then you eat it. Well, I know that you're going to have the best Thanksgiving meal ever. Amen? Well, let's be honest with you. How many of you are thankful that Mrs. Garrity's kindergarten class is not cooking your Thanksgiving meal? <laughs> we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Amen? This has been our theme verse this month, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, a month long, we have been focusing on being thankful no matter what we're going through. Two weeks ago, King Jehoshaphat set us a great example of being thankful even when we're stressed. Uh, last week, we turned to Job chapter 1. Job showed us how to be thankful even when we're grieving and depressed. 
And this morning, we're going to take a fresh look at one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. From Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is going to show us how to be thankful even when we're under attack. So make sure you're there in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6, and we'll pick up beginning in verse 1. Daniel 6, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, over a a period of about 20 years, the Babylonian army had attacked and conquered the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem. In fact, they they captured and conquered the city three different times in that 20-year period. And according to Daniel chapter 1, during the first invasion, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, took as POWs some of the young Israelite men who were part of the nobility and those who were part of the royal family. One of those young men was Daniel. He was probably only about 15 years old at the time that King Nebuchadnezzar's army took him hundreds of miles east back to Babylon. So Daniel, age of 15 or so, he's ripped from his family, he's ripped from his homeland, hauled hundreds of miles across the desert to this foreign land where they spoke a language that he didn't speak. They were eating strange foods that he didn't eat, and they worshipped gods that he didn't worship. Daniel was a fish out of water. But you probably remember as Daniel remained faithful to God in captivity, God blessed him. Daniel became one of the most powerful, respected leaders in King Nebuchadnezzar's service. And so he served God faithfully, even though he was in a place that I'm guessing he hated. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, the nation of Babylon has been overthrown by Persia. And the Persian king, King Darius, needs to find a way to effectively manage the Babylonian empire that he has just absorbed into his own Persian empire. And so King Darius' strategy, according to these early verses in chapter 6, his strategy is to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Now, what's a satrap? Well, a satrap was a governor in the nation of Persia. It was a governor. And so Darius seems to have divided his kingdom into 120 provinces, or perhaps he just divided the Babylonian empire that he had just absorbed into 120 provinces. And he places a satrap over each province. Uh, The contemporary English version, I think, says it pretty well to help us get a better idea of how these satraps were ruling. The CEV says it this way, Darius divided his kingdom into 120 states and placed a governor in charge of each one. So those of us in the United States, we understand this. We've got one country, but 50 states within the country. Each of those states has its own governor. So it was probably a similar thing here with King Darius. So it sounded like a pretty good plan, but evidently King Darius doesn't completely trust the 120 satraps that he's just appointed. 
Because we read in verse 2 that he appoints three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king, it says, might not suffer loss. The king fears the satraps might use their new positions of power to embezzle money and, and, and pad their own wallets. So the king needs three leaders who he can trust implicitly. And one of those three leaders, one of those three administrators, is Daniel. If you do the math, Daniel, by this time, was probably around 82 years old. At this point, he had been in Babylonia and now in Persia for over 65 years. According to verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This is remarkable. There Daniel was thinking he was going to enjoy his golden years. He's in retirement. He's something like 82 years old. He gets yanked out of retirement and thrust into service with the new administration. And he quickly works his way up to a place where the king wants to make him the second most powerful leader in all the land. Kind of reminds me of a certain character at the end of Exodus, excuse me, the end of Genesis. Remember Joseph, you know, was taken into captivity in Egypt and God's blessing allowed him to work his way up to being the second most powerful leader in all of Egypt. Similarly, Daniel is about to become the second most powerful leader in the Persian empire. So God is blessing him in a big way. And we would think from this point forward, it would be smooth sailing for, for Daniel. He's going to be the second most powerful man in the land and the most powerful man. Uh, the king, King Darius, loves Daniel. And so it's got to be smooth sailing, right? Not exactly. The king loves him, but all the other leaders don't. He's got these wonderful character traits. He's honest. He's hardworking. He's reliable. He wouldn't hurt a fly. What's not to like? But the other leaders were insanely jealous of him. The other two administrators and the satraps, they're deeply jealous. And it turns out they're also deeply anti-Semitic. They hate Jews. They didn't want some old Jew to fill the position that they felt they rightfully deserved. And they didn't want that old Boy Scout ratting them out if they were embezzling some funds that they weren't supposed to. Well, Proverbs 27, verse 4, says it so well. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? It's a great question, isn't it? Cruelty is bad. Fury and anger is, is overwhelming at times, but no one can stand before jealousy when jealousy is full steam ahead. Well, Daniel's fellow leaders are under the influence of the green-eyed monster. They're jealous of him, and they want him dead. Well, we pick up in verse 4 to see what happens next. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as group 
to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except for you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Wow. I want you to see how the message paraphrases verses 4 and 5. The vice regents and governors got together to find some old scoundrel or skeleton. I didn't say that right, did I? Some old scandal or skeleton in Daniel's life that they could use against him. But they couldn't dig up anything. He was totally exemplary and trustworthy. They could find no evidence of negligence or misconduct. So they finally gave up and said, we're never going to find anything against this Daniel unless we can scheme up something religious. And so that's exactly what Daniel's haters do. They scheme up something religious. They know Daniel is a man of prayer. They know every day he goes to his upstairs room at home and he opens the window blinds and he gets down on his knees to pray and give thanks to God. He does this religiously three times a day, morning, noon, and night, just like clockwork. So the other two administrators and some of the satraps, they go to the king and they start slapping on the butter in verses 6 and 7. Oh, King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, does the king smell a rat? <laughs> Evidently not. I wonder, though, if he looks carefully across the crowd to see if Daniel is in the group. Because he trusts Daniel more than any other advisor. So perhaps he asks the question, uh, where's Daniel? I'd like to get his take on your proposal. Perhaps the other leaders spoke up and said, oh, we, we already talked to Daniel. And Daniel says it's a great idea. He's all for it. He loves the idea. Well, the butter and the deceit seems to work because the king decides to agree and put this edict in writing in a way that it couldn't be revoked. Warren Wearsby offers this important insight. He says there is every evidence that Darius loved and appreciated Daniel. But in his haste, the king had put his friend in peril. It has well been said that flattery is manipulation, not communication. In his pride, Darius succumbed to the flattery of evil men. Isn't that good? Flattery is manipulation, not communication. I'm going to try to remember that because that's a very deep thought. Verse 9, King Darius put the decree in writing. Well, let's see what happens next. Picking up in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room 
where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went out as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Uh, Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of those exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Verse 10 is one of the most beautiful and powerful verses in the book of Daniel. I love this verse. What does Daniel do after he learns about the law that was aimed squarely at his faith in the one true God? He could have gone into hiding for a month. He he could have closed his upstairs shutters on his windows and prayed silently in a more discreet position. But he doesn't. Daniel goes home and three times a day he gets down on his knees and he prays, giving thanks to his God. And it says, just as he had done before. Wow. Wow. Daniel refuses to compromise. He refuses to water down his faith. He refuses to come up with excuses for not maintaining his prayer life. Even though his life is in jeopardy, he refuses to fear man more than he fears God. Daniel refuses to be a coward. So he prays and thanks God just as he had always done. Same time, same place, same devotion to God. Because Daniel was so consistent, catching him red-handed was pretty easy. Daniel's critics go as a group to his house to do a stakeout, and their sting operation probably only takes a few minutes. They catch him in the act of praying, not to King Darius, as the bogus law required, but praying to the one true God. And they waste no time ratting out Daniel to the king. There must have been some pretty smug looks on their faces When they said to the king in verse 13, uh, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays. Count them one, two, three times a day. You know, they had some smug looks on their faces. 
According to verse 14, the king is devastated. He tries everything he can think of to rescue Daniel, but his hands are tied. A law of the Persians could not be revoked even by the king who wrote that law. So King Darius gives the order and the soldiers arrested Daniel, tossed him into the lion's den. The Persians, they didn't outlaw cruel or unusual punishments like we do here in the United States. Mutilation by lions was one of their favorite forms of execution. They liked it a lot. The lion's den was either a cave or a pit. And there would be an opening near the top where something could be safely dropped in without the lions jumping out. And so it was some sort of cave or pit. And and one commentary I was reading said that oftentimes these Persian lion pits or lion caves uh, would have a movable wall that could be dropped down the middle of that cave. And so that lion keeper could toss some meat over to one side of the cave from up above. And when the lions all rushed over to eat that meat, he could drop down that dividing wall, go on the other side of the wall where the lions had just been because there's no longer any lions. And he could clean that side of the cave, safely get back out of that cave and lift the wall up so they could have free reign of that cave once again. And so... Possibly what happened was when when Daniel was thrown in there, he could have been thrown into the part of the cave where the lions weren't. And when that wall was lifted up, the lions would have assumed there was something to eat and they would have charged him once that wall was lifted, ravenous, ready to eat. One thing that some people might say these days is, well, I've seen videos on YouTube and stuff of these lion tamers. They're petting lions and they're wrestling with lions. Some of these guys are crazy enough to stick their heads inside a lion's mouth. Well, I can guarantee you there's no lion keeper today that would ever do that with a hungry lion that hasn't eaten in two weeks. (laughs) And so the Persians were very strategic. They kept their lions agitated and hungry at all times. These lions were hungry. And so whenever something was thrown in there, they didn't care what it was. They would maul it and chew it to pieces. That's why the Persians liked it so much as a form of punishment for the criminals that they hated the most. So Daniel's thrown into this lion's den. Now, he wasn't a young buck like we often seem see pictured in these paintings or these drawings of Daniel in the lion's den. This guy, he's got a receding hairline. Maybe he's 35 or 40. Remember, he's an old feller. So this is a little more accurate here. He was probably 82 years old, as I mentioned earlier. So he's an old man. He's not young and agile. He can't outrun. He can't outmaneuver these lions. He's a sitting duck once he's dropped in there. And so he could not escape. Unless he trusted completely in the Lord his God. There was nothing in his own body that would save him. He was old. He couldn't escape. He couldn't outmaneuver him. He relied completely on God. The only way Daniel wouldn't be mauled to death would be if his God worked a miracle and closed the mouths of the hungry lions. Other than that, Daniel would be toast. Let's finish the chapter picking up in verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up. He hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to save you 
rescue you from the lions. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Isn't that cool? (laughs) At sunrise, the king rushes to the lion's den. He calls out in agony, Daniel, servant of the Most High God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? I wonder if Daniel had a dramatic pause. Maybe play with the king for just a few seconds. I'm just going to be really, really quiet and let the tension build a little bit. Kind of wonder if there was a dramatic pause there before he spoke up. Maybe he's counting to himself. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one. And finally, he speaks up and says, you bet God saved me. Here I am alive and well. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. Oh, the king is delighted. He gives the order to pull Daniel out of the pit and the soldiers are blown away just as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had been pulled out of the fiery furnace and they didn't have a single singed hair on their body. In much the same way Daniel's pulled out of the lion's den, he doesn't have a single itty bitty scratch on him. Not a scratch. And the king, knowing that he had been hoodwinked by the other two administrators and some of the satraps, he orders his soldiers to throw all of them into the lion's den along with their wives and children. Now, in Israel, God in the Old Testament forbids rulers from punishing children for the sins of their fathers. That was outlawed in Israel, but it was not outlawed in Persia. Persian leaders believed it was much easier to bury bodies than it was to keep an eye on possible assassins for a number of years. And so they believed there was a high chance that if he executed the head of the family, the sons of that guy that was executed would be putting a target on the king's back as they got older. And so it was easier in the the Persian mind just to kill everybody in the family so he wouldn't have to worry about conspirators and possible assassins. So it was cruel and unusual punishment. But that's what the Persians did. He throws them all into that lion's den 
and it's pretty descriptive. Those lions are ma- those lions maul and tear those bodies apart before they even touch down on the floor of that den. Those lions are ravenous, and every one of those thrown in the den is killed. King Darius issues a decree that contains one of the most beautifully concise descriptions of God in the whole Old Testament. He says, He is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and He saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Well, I want to share with you three steps to being thankful when you're under attack. I think there's three steps that we can pull from Daniel's example, particularly from verse 10. Step number one, keep calm and take your concerns to God. Keep calm and take your concerns to God. When Daniel first found out that his critics had set a trap for him that would likely get him killed, he didn't blow a gasket. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't hunt his accusers down and give them a piece of his mind. He doesn't even post a rant on Facebook. Imagine that. He simply goes home and carves out some one-on-one time with God. God wasn't freaking out, so Daniel didn't feel the need to freak out either. If God wasn't worried about the king's edict, then Daniel didn't need to worry about the king's edict either. I love how... Helen Keller put it. She wrote, So much has been given me, I have no time to ponder over that which has been denied. Hmm. So much has been given to me, I have no time to ponder over the things that I don't have. What a glorious thing to say. What a wonderful perspective. From a woman who was both deaf and blind, if you're consumed With thoughts of God's blessings, there's no room left to be consumed with thoughts of man's curses. Well, when you're under attack, number one, keep calm. Take your concerns to God. Step number two, remember that God hasn't changed. So give thanks to God just as you've done before. Some of us need to hear this today. When you are criticized, God is no less worthy of your praise and thanks than he was before you were criticized. Amen? When you are cussed up one side and down the other, God is no less worthy of your praise and thanks than he was before you were cussed out. When people talk trash about you and plot against you behind your back, God is no less worthy of your praise and thanks than he was before you were trash-talked and conspired against. God is good. God is just. God is compassionate. God is faithful. He is provider. And he is worthy of your thanks. There's nothing that your critics can say or do to you that changes who God is. So as people's criticism rings in your ears, thank God anyway. Thank him anyway. Step number three. As long as you're not doing it in a self-serving way, express your thankfulness to God openly. Let me say that again. As long as you're not doing it in a self-serving way, 
Express your thankfulness to God openly. Jesus makes it clear that we're not supposed to be doing our acts of righteousness before men to receive the praise of men. But he does not say that we are not to do our acts publicly. We do them privately and publicly for the glory of God. Notice that Daniel didn't close the mouth, close his mouth or his windows when he was commanded to stop giving thanks to God. He prayed with his windows open before the law was passed, and he prayed with his windows open after the law was passed. No change. And when he was sitting in the lion's den and asked if he was okay, he took the opportunity to give thanks to God again in earshot of the king and anyone else who could hear his voice. I think it's a shame when we have a lot to thank God for and we keep it all to ourselves. That's a tragedy. Let's not do that, especially this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Let's be very vocal, expressing our thanks to God. I found this little quote a few weeks ago from H.U. Westermeyer. He points out something about the pilgrims that we all need to remember this week. The pilgrims made seven times more graves than huts. No Americans have been more impoverished than these who, nevertheless... Set aside a day of thanksgiving. Isn't that remarkable? Wow. Seven times more graves than huts. But they set aside a day for thanksgiving anyway. If they could do it, certainly we should be able to do it. Two friends met each other on the street one day. One looked really sad, almost on the verge of tears. His friend asked, What has the world done to you, my old friend? The sad fellow said, Let me tell you. Three weeks ago, my uncle died and left me $40,000. And two weeks ago, a cousin I never even knew died and left me $85,000 free and clear. His friend responded, Wow, that's a lot of money. Sounds to me that you've been very blessed. To which the first man responded, You don't understand. Last week, my great aunt passed away. I inherited almost a quarter of a million dollars from her. Now the man's friend was really confused. Then why do you look so glum? And he answered, because this week I haven't gotten anything. (laughs) What? This dude had just received almost a quarter million dollars. And look, actually it was more than that. And he's focused on the fact that he hadn't received anything this week. So often, we're much like this guy. The glass is half empty instead of being half full. Wow. Friends, being thankful is a choice. You can choose to be grateful and thankful for the quarter million dollars God blessed you with last week. Or you can choose to gripe and complain about the hundred bucks he didn't give you this week. Being thankful is a command of Scripture, but like every other command in Scripture, it requires a conscious choice. And we've seen this month, Jehoshaphat made a conscious choice to thank God, even when he had an enemy army bearing down on him. 
Matthew Henry made a conscious choice to thank God even after he was mugged and had his wallet stolen. Job made a conscious choice to thank God even after all ten of his kids were killed. Corey Ten Boom made a conscious choice to thank God even when the fleas in the concentration camp were driving her crazy. And we've seen today that Daniel made a conscious choice to thank God even when his haters were plotting to have him tortured and killed. About 12 years ago, one of my favorite people at Impact Christian Church, a sweet old saint named Floyd, gave me a book, a little book called Prison to Praise. It's just barely over 100 pages. And it was written by a military chaplain in the Vietnam era by the name of Merlin Carruthers. And Floyd, he gave me a copy of this, and I think... Over the last 20 years of his life, he gave away hundreds of copies of this book because he just loved it. Merlin Carruthers, as he served as a chaplain during the era of Vietnam, he would counsel with different people and he would consistently point them to 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He had a lady come in one day. And she was saying, you know what, I I can't handle my husband's drinking anymore. I'm going to divorce him. And he said, okay, but I'd like you to do something for me. I'd I'd like you to thank God that you're married to a drunkard. I'd like you to thank God that your husband comes home drunk every night. She thought he was crazy. But eventually she gave in, she caved, and she began thanking God every day that she was married to a man who was a drunkard. Within a few short weeks, her husband had stopped drinking and their marriage was better than it had been in years. Because God inhabits the praises of his people. And when you start praising and thanking him, even in the midst of your circumstances that stink, you better believe God's going to come in and transform those circumstances from the inside out. Merlin Carruthers had another couple come to him, a husband and a wife, and the wife didn't have any other family. Her husband was all she had, and she said she might end, up, end her life if he was sent off to Vietnam, which he was scheduled to be sent off shortly. And she went in and told the chaplain, can you talk to one of the higher-ups? Can you talk to someone? Because I, I can't live without my husband. I won't be able to live if he's shipped off to, to Vietnam. And Merlin Carruthers turns to her and says, I want you to get down on your knees right now, and I want you to thank God that your husband's going to be sent to Vietnam. Like the other lady, she thought he was crazy. But she began thanking God and the circumstances unfold that God works some amazing miracles on the heels of praise. That's what God does. He works miracles in and through praise. Just like Corey Ten Boom, Merlin Carruthers didn't just urge Christians to give thanks in all circumstances. He urged them to give thanks for all circumstances, because he knew that somehow, some way, God is always at work for the good of Christ's followers. You see, in God's hands, every circumstance, every hardship, every attack, even every curse is actually a blessing. Do you believe that? Even every curse, if it's held in the hands of God, will be a blessing for you. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to be a fair-weather Christian who only thanks God when everyone around you is being nice to you and your health is good and your life is comfortable? Or are you going to do what God has called you to do? To give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you 
in Christ Jesus. Whatever you're going through, I encourage you to thank God not only in the circumstance, but go the extra mile and thank Him for the circumstance. Thank Him for your broken marriage. Thank Him for your eviction notice. Thank Him for the cancer. God will work in the midst of that circumstance for your good if you'll hand it over to Him in praise and thanks. Give thanks, church. Give thanks. Heavenly Father, I thank You for giving us this difficult, challenging command. Transform us by it. Help us to truly give thanks in all circumstances. And Lord, if we have the faith to do so, even for all circumstances. And we believe, O oh God, that you're going to move and work in our lives in an amazing way as we do. Lord, inhabit our praises this week. And give us a spirit of gratitude and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you this week as you serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank Him no matter what you're going through. Happy Thanksgiving.